Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tortoise. Hello. I'm James Harding. I'm joined by Tortoise editors Kerry Thomas and Charles Wittell. Hello. 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 And I'm also very pleased to say I'm joined by the FT's US financial editor, Brooke Masters. Brooke worked for a fair while here in London. She's now back in New York covering the world's financial markets at a time when, frankly, we're all a little worried about the financial markets. Hello and welcome to you, Brooke. Thanks for having me. And with that, welcome to the Tortoise News Meeting. Fulton County Jail inmate number P01135809, otherwise known as 45th President of the United States, Donald John Trump. That is now an image that will be cemented in history. Two and a half months after signaling her intention to resign, Nadine Dorries officially did it. A letter of resignation that reads like a CV and the political equivalent of a burn book. Surgeons in Australia plucked a live worm from a woman's brain. Pulled it out and I thought, gosh, what is that? It's moving. Take it out of my hands. Brooke, Kerry and Charles, it's been quite a weird week. The news has felt rather bitty. So what are the stories that you think really should be leading the news? Why don't we start, long story short, in a single sentence. Brooke, what do you think should be leading? Can the US and China be frenemies? Big question. Giles? The big smokeless London's low emission zone expands almost to the M25. And Kerry, yours? James, all I want to do is the biggest financial crime in history. Well, that sounds too enticing not to get tucked into right away. Kerry, why don't we do that? The biggest financial crime in history, what's that? So I, I was struck yesterday that a, that a congressional select committee, the Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic in the United States, wrote to Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, to, an, to ask for an update on fraud in the US COVID response. And I was struck by it for a, for a bunch of different reasons, th- three in particular. I think, the, first of all, the figures involved are staggering. Secondly, nobody paid any much attention to the fact that they'd written to Merrick Garland to ask for an update. And thirdly, because the parallels with this country are also quite interesting. So just on the figures, the the figure that the, um, the Select Committee had in its letter to Merrick Garland was that $280 billion out of the U.S. Uh, total COVID response, which amounted to, I think, to about $4.6 trillion, uh, had gone missing and and was to be found in the pockets of criminals, mostly in Russia, China, and they said Nigeria. Can I understand something? Is that right that it's drifted out of the US? 
or has it just sunk into the pockets of Americans who took government-backed loans? How much of it has stayed domestic? This, the Select Committee didn't put a figure on proportion that had stayed domestically and, and had gone abroad. But they did say that they, they, their view was that the bulk of it had ended up abroad. And Kerry, can you just do the read across to the UK? Because I remember a British Treasury Minister in the House of Lords resigned over fraud related to COVID loans. Is the US COVID loan fraud similar to our COVID loan fraud? It's, uh, I mean, it's obviously being the United States, it's, it's of, a, of a different order of magnitude, but in, in proportional terms, it's it's not dissimilar. So the read across to the UK is that um, these figures are all slightly out of date because I think no one has been particularly interested in this story recently. So you have to go back a, a year to the last time the Public Affairs Committee of the House of Commons looked into this, and they estimated... £4.9 billion lost to fraud through the bounce back loan scheme alone, which was the. So I think, as Brooke says, one of the differences between the US and here is that the majority of the fraud here came through the bounce back loan scheme, whereas in, whereas in the US it seems to be spread across the Paycheck Protection Program and a, and a COVID unemployment relief program. Um, here, the focus of it does seem to have been the bounce back loan scheme, which was a loan scheme designed for small businesses. And James, you remember at the time, there was a clamour to get this money out the door quickly. The, the accusation was that Germany, that France were getting this money into the, into the pockets of particularly small and medium sized businesses quicker than was happening in this country. So this was very deliberately designed as a light touch kind of scheme that the regulations around it were not high. But the level of fraud within it, which again, going back away, the National Audit Office uh, concurs with the PAC, uh, somewhere in the region of 10% of that entire scheme lost to fraud is, is massively high compared with any regular public sector endeavour. Brooke, just to say one of the interesting things in the UK case is that, of course, these schemes were personally presided over by Rishi Sunak. So the curious thing about it is that it hasn't had much political blowback, even though it could quite personally rebound on the man who's now the prime minister. What's interesting in the the U.S., of course, is there similarly has not been an enormous amount of conversation about this. I think that's because both parties have dirty hands in the U.S. I mean, it is Trump... Who, whose administration oversaw this mass um, sending out of money with inadequate checks. But Democrats in Congress wrote a lot of the laws that led to it, and Democratic states sent out lots of the money. So pretty much everybody's politicians are caught up in this, and so no one really wants to talk about it. In the U.S., the fraud is, is slightly different in that some of it are loan schemes um, to businesses that shouldn't have gotten them and will never repay them. But the the bulk of the really egregious fraud, I think, is more taking advantage of the program in straight out fraud, where you invent somebody who applies for either a business loan or applies for the tax refunds. You know, people, lots of people in jail had their social security numbers stolen to use, you know, to use this. I mean, it was a program that was designed to send money out without checks. Yeah. Um, because the whole point was to get money out fast. And, and not surprisingly, opportunistic criminals took advantage of it. I mean, Lots of people also just benefited. I mean, my kid, for example, got you know the the benefit because he is 
he's a college kid and he pays a little bit of taxes. And so therefore he counts as low income. And so he got the payment. It's totally legitimate in his case. But you can see how that becomes very um, tempting and Charles, for this- businesses. And also the offices – I was Brooks, just going to say the offices that traditionally send out unemployment payments – are quite small, and they normally deal with much smaller numbers. So their fraud checks were, while not great to begin with, were just they were just completely unstaffed to deal with the kind of volume they were expected to deal with. And Charles, isn't that the reason why there isn't much coverage of this story, which is that everyone kind of knows that the rules didn't apply during the pandemic, and people just want to, people were worried that the economy would seize up, and they just wanted to send money gushing through the system any which way. And if a little bit of it got lost, or even quite a bit of it got lost, that was the price. Yeah, to Kerry's point, 10% loss is uh, unacceptable and large by normal standards. But I think one thing everybody will accept is that normal standards didn't apply. It's really interesting, we've got the the public COVID inquiry are going on uh, at the moment. And I will froth at the mouth if people aren't held to account for egregious failures of public health policy and and management uh, in the crucial early months of the uh, pandemic. But it'll be interesting to see if there is the same appetite to hold people account on on the financial front. All right, let's come back to it at the end. We'll make a call on which story should lead the news. Brooke, why can't we be friends? Well, as you know, tensions have been rising between China and the U.S. over pretty much everything. Um, But the most recent tit-for-tats have been the U.S. slapping on uh, export controls on technology and China doing things like raiding U.S. and and other Western companies for being seen to be a national security risk. Uh, What happened this week that makes it worth delving into it now is that uh, Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, took a trip to China to try and reset the relationship. She's the fourth Biden administration official to go in the last couple of months to try to keep the threats and anger from escalating beyond you know, rhetoric to something truly scary that would involve, you know, people crossing the Taiwan Strait. And so her trip was an interesting study in contrast in that she gave one speech about how, you know, we ve- the U.S. very much wants to keep doing business, you know, that please don't take all this stuff personally. You know, there's only, only 2% of all kinds of U.S. exports are affected by these controls. It's all, we're all buddies. And she met with a boodle of Chinese administrators uh, and and politicians to try and bring home that message. But she also gave a speech saying that U.S. and Western investors were starting to consider China uninvestable because of the restrictions they were in, imposing in return. It was a bit of a carrot and stick in the same person. And I think it's really important that we take a look at what happens if this trading relationship does break down, because China's economy is already slowing and, and somewhat troubled. Um, and it's been the engine for growth for decades. And, and how that plays out, I think, makes it an extraordinarily important thing. How important is it? You know, the f- curious thing, Brooks, generally, I have to confess, I, I'm not a big lover of those stories. You know, official, most of us have never heard of, goes to another capital, meets another official we've not quite heard of, speaks to each other in a language neither, neither none of us really understand. This one I was really intrigued by. Partly, I guess, because Raimondo herself was hacked, wasn't she, earlier in the summer? Yes. Her emails seem to have been hacked. So you can imagine she goes with a cer- in a certain um, 
<laughs> with a certain personal sense of grievance as well as uh, all, all the rest. But the thing that really fascinated me in reading about her trip was how far things have changed. So when I was a China correspondent for the FT, everyone was focused on the US-China trade relationship. It was the engine of globalization in many ways. Now I was looking and seeing that actually the US's major trading partners are Canada and Mexico. China's major trading partners are in the neighborhood in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia. And so I just wonder how much can both sides afford to be a little bit more aggressive in their language because the relationship is not as important as it once was and not as important to growth. I think you've hit on something is that both countries are looking elsewhere and they're becoming a bit more like the sort of Soviet US competition where they're not trading partners as much as geopolitical rivals and seeking their own networks. And so the more the US and and US companies look to Vietnam and Thailand and you know Indonesia for their supplies instead of China the more the decoupling just happens and therefore China can make nasty uh, remarks and vice versa without it affecting their bottom line which in some ways is scary because you know the whole point of the US China relationship you know 10 15 years ago was that you know inter interconnections would keep the world at peace and do you think that the Raimondo story, her visit, is the China story this week? Or is it the China slowdown and the government's efforts, troubled efforts, to try and breathe some life back into the Chinese economy? That is also a, a really important thing. I think partly uh, I, it felt to me like there was not a turning point in that story. I mean, that the economy is slowing. Um, the government doesn't know what to do about it. It is um, what happened is, of course, the reopening from the pandemic has not proved to be a big boost the way people expected. And some of the longer term factors, such as you know the aging Chinese population and the rising labor costs, as well as the massive debt overhang in the property sector are really weighing the economy down. I'm not sure, I guess from my point of view, I'm not sure they hit a, a particular turning point this week. So I'm not sure it's, we want to do that story at some point, for sure. Giles? I'm struck by what's familiar about this story. Um, political leaders in both countries, uh, for their own reasons, have been anxious to uh, score points off each other, um, big up the national security agenda, on Biden's part, restrict exports of dual-use technologies, on Xi Jinping's part, uh, make threats about, about the Taiwan Strait. But the mutual economic dependence is so familiar from... Uh, before COVID and before Xi, um, and and it and it's only strengthened now with what Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute's called China's long economic COVID and 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 its failure to to stage a robust economic recovery, which which has only become clear in the last quarter. Let's face it, and uh, and the the perpetual American need for exports and f finding new markets amongst the 500 million strong uh, chi Chinese middle class. So I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of Neil Ferguson and Chimerica and the sort of uh, ir irresistible force bringing these two countries together despite the best efforts of their political leaders. K Kerry, what, how do you feel about this story? Uh, um, it strikes me that the U.S. Commerce Secretary's visit to China is one of those stories that 
it always plays in the middle of a running order. It never quite leads the news. Do you think it should now? I mean, it's interesting that this week we've also had a, a lot of previewing, a lot of throat clearing ahead of the, our Foreign Secretary James Cleverley's visit to Beijing, which is coming up as well. So those two things have have given that, that, that story of the sort of Western relationship with China a boost that I think otherwise the Raimondo story, probably for most news outlets, with the exception of the FT, probably wouldn't have probably wouldn't have hit the radar at all. I think that it seems to me that we have never in this country made up our minds about China as decisively as the US seemed to have done. That there were contradictions in the in the way that we were dealing with the Chinese. You know, they're still involved in Hinkley Point nuclear power station, I think, not so in size well. You know, the the the, the arguments about Huawei have never been as heated or as fully resolved in this country as they have been in the States, perhaps. So I think there's a it's perhaps an easier road back for James cleverly uh, than it um, than it has felt for, for Raimondo and the and the and the Biden administration, which seemed to have um, been dragged to a position by the Trump legacy that was that was harder than than perhaps this country had ever adopted. Brooke, thank you for your story. We're going to go to Giles in a moment. Let's just take a beat. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring. And so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Charles, what's your story? The area covered by London's ultra-low emission zone expanded by a factor of 18. 700,000 motorists will now be affected by new air quality requirements and they will have to scrap their cars or vans uh, for compliant ones. Five million people might get better air in return. The mayor of London, who has insisted on pushing this through, says that this will save 4,000 lives a year. That's a metric. That doesn't mean that 4,000 people who are going to die will be saved. It means that 4,000 life equivalents won't be shortened over the long term by cardio (laughs) or respiratory disease. The 
Go on, you're laughing, you're pointing and, at the screen. And, and, and Giles, why should, I'm, 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 I'm laughing at the idea of the life equivalent. I don't even know that's whether that's what I'm living. Turns out I'm not even living a life, but a life equivalent. Giles, but my question is, why should I care about this if I live in Brighton, let alone Bordeaux, Boston, anywhere else? Because London is bidding to lead where cities all over the world might actually follow. As you know, the politics of this within the UK have become on a, on a knife edge. Um, the Conservatives clung on to a seat, a suburban seat in West London, which used to be held by Boris Johnson, entirely as a result of this issue because of motorist and voter anger a couple of months ago. And the Tories are now wondering whether to roll this out nationwide as, a, as an election policy next year. But... Montreal, Bogota, Barcelona, Berlin, Mexico City are all looking at whether London can make a large-scale tax on dirty air, pay for itself, improve public health, reduce congestion and accelerate progress towards net zero, which not just in this jurisdiction but in many others is in law. And Charles, can you just explain just the mechanics of this? Because I understand there's a difference between an ultra-low emission zone and a congestion charging zone, i.e. how what do you penalise and what do you charge for? So can you just talk through the mechanics of it? Yeah, congestion charging zone has long existed for central London on the assumption that some people will continue to want to drive into and out of central London and it's a revenue raiser, people will pay for it. The ULES, ultra-low emission zone, is structured so that over the first its first few years, while people are swapping their non-compliant older vehicles for newer ones, which, by the way, don't actually have to be zero emission, they don't have to be battery-powered, but it's structured so that they will pay, in this case, $15 or £12.50 per day, but then one, uh, already 90% of the motorists in this new donut around London are already compliant. The expectation is that within a, by 2027, everyone will be, and it will be raising no money at all. So its purpose is explicitly and uh, not revenue raising. It's for air quality. And I, I, this is Sadiq Khan's uh, position on it. And I think we have to take him at face value. It, it, there is a logic to it. One, one element of it that I'm intrigued by are the number of people who are either dismantling or vandalising the ULES cameras. And the slight kind of anti-state, anti-vax echo of all of this, that people who think they're right and the government is wrong and is becoming overbearing and taking matters into their own hands... What does the government do, what does the London government do to say, look, this is public property, publicly paid for, you can't just go, you know, ripping down lampposts or vandalising cameras with spray paints and secretaires? Well, it has uh, asserted new powers to uh, crack down on that kind of protest, which, as Kerry was pointing out before we started this, uh, have already been used against a different sort of protester, the eco-radical just-stop-oil uh, protester, whether the, the police enforce existing laws against vandalising public property, in this case in the same way, remains to be seen. 
as Kerry was pointing out, um, right-wing press in this country have been much more relaxed about people knocking over cameras on lampposts, uh, which have been set up to uh, take photographs of non-compliant vehicles. Sorry, Kerry, just talk me through all of that. Well, it was a very quick point I made to Giles, which was that there's a splendid level of hypocrisy in, in the right wing in the right wing newspapers who who come down like a ton of bricks on the just up oil protesters and, and are happy to see any draconian new uh, government measure uh, used against them, but have rather celebrated the the sort of um, uh, protesters against the emissions zone, the sort of sons of. What Tyler and a sort of part of that long tradition of um, you know <laughs> noble British descent. So so you know hypocrisy in the press. Who knew hypocrisy everywhere? Remember how everyone in the right wing in the U.S. was outraged at those you know George Floyd protesters that they were marching around and things, and then seems fine with January sixth. But there is something, isn't there, Brooke, in this um, anti-state. Um, anti, not just deep state, but anti-state intervening in your everyday life. I can't help feeling it's going to be a feature. It is going to be a feature of the UK general election. You can see Sunak trying to make it a dividing line. And you can see it's going to be a feature of the US election too. And it is one of the consequences of the pandemic we didn't see coming. Well, I think what's interesting is that it has become a right-wing issue. Because if you think about in the US, abortion has always been a government interference with personal lives issue from the left. But now it cuts both ways. And so people want different kinds of interference. All right. Well, one of the things about the way this works, Brooke, is you can't choose your own story. You have to suggest which story should lead the news. Uh, if 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 it wasn't US China... Which of those two, COVID fraud or ULEDs, would you go with? I would say one thing about ULEDs, if you're going to do it, you should mention, I mean, there's a massive fight going on between New York and New Jersey about new taxes uh, on commuters, which are aimed at the same, it's the same issue of trying to reduce car traffic in New York. And so this, again, is an issue that resonates. And perhaps if we frame it that way, then you could lead on ULEDs. Kerry? I would go with Brooke's story because I do think things are changing between the West and China, for different reasons, I think, in the United States and here. Here, it seems to be much more part of the sort of desperate search for growth wherever we can find it that's recalibrating those relationships. And that may be, that may be a different feature. But I do think, you know, I've been fascinated by the coverage of, of, of Brooks coverage, but also the Evergrande stuff this week. So I would get, I would get into that. Charles? I go with Raimondo in Beijing. This is a $700 billion relationship. And I'm struck by the way, uh, optically, It was the U.S. going to Beijing cap in hand. But in reality, Beijing needs American help to revive its economy more than the other way around. And I wonder if there's a geostrategic quid pro quo and questions, uh, favours being asked behind the scenes in relation to Ukraine. Interesting. Well, for what it's worth, this is one of those news meetings where none of us would agree because I would lead, carry on your story, COVID loans. I would lead on it because... I think that the way we talk about public money is completely unreliable. We get fixated on tiny sums that seem to go on, you know, the upgrade of, you know, a prominent government minister's travel. Uh, and then when billions of pounds go missing or hundreds of billions of dollars go missing, we don't pursue that, which would have real consequences for public finances and therefore real consequences for public services, i.e. it's a whodunit, but with a lot of consequence behind it, a lot of uh, real-world consequence behind it. I 
actually always was a bit sniffy about ULES, thinking that it was a story that felt very, very much uh, interesting to London as no one else. Giles, you've convinced me, I have to confess, that there's much more to it. And the reason I'm embarrassed to say, Brooke, that I would choose your story to run third if we were running a running order today, is that it feels like it's a temperature check on a relationship that she revealed what more Americans think, that it's uninvestable, but she also did what the administration is trying to do, which is patch things up. I feel as though in many ways it really spoke the truth about the US-China relationship at the moment, which is it's a bit of a mess, but they're trying to move it along. And so for that reason, I would, at least for this news meeting, run COVID fraud at a giant scale, trying to clean up the air in London and cities around the world, and US-China quietly, gently trying to make it a little bit better. That would be my running order for this week. Brooke, I know you've got to get back to the day job. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to do one piece of housekeeping uh, and then wind up. Thank you. Charles and Kerry, before we're done, I just wanted to mark our homework for a moment because one of the things that we did this week at Tortoise, in the daily news matrix, which is our two by two where we rank stories, one axis is important, not important. The other axis is surprising, not surprising. The report that showed that more than half the country in the UK no longer identifies as Christian Well, we said that was really not at all surprising and not at all important. And when I saw that, I thought, I'm not sure I agree. I'm not sure we've got that right. It strikes me that it may not be surprising, but surely in a host of ways, it's important. It is significant in that it points to this long running blind spot about country and its identity. We have an established church. We have a hereditary monarch, for heaven's sake, who is head of that church. Not even, It's not the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's the monarch. Um, and, uh, and yet almost nobody goes to church. And the clergy of the Church of England are in despair. So, yes, it, it it's, it's significant because it, it points to this lingering aspect of our identity but I, I, it's not at all surprising and I, I, I do hesitate um, in, in agreeing with you that it's, it's intrinsically more important when, when about only 1% of people in this country are really exercised by it. Do you think it's important Kerry? Look I think it probably is but I mean I confess I'm going to be a little bit parochial again. So my initial instinct when I see that story in the Times is, hooray, can we get rid of thought for the day now? Um, but that's uh, <laughs> from my old... Did my you really old... want to get rid of thought for the day? No, I never really did because it was never a practical... It was never a practical... What I, what I always thought about it when I was on the Today programme was that it was something you would do if the programme was in real trouble for some reason and you needed to signal that, you know, you, you, we're modernising this thing or... Um, you know, some, something like that. If there was a crisis, then it would be an interesting thing to, to have up your sleeve to, def, to deflect attention from it. But there was no will within the BBC to touch it, and there still wouldn't be. So that's a slightly, it's a slightly glib point. I just want to pick up on a couple of things that Giles said in a differently parochial way. So you said, you know, we in the, you talked about the UK and we have an, an established church and the sovereign is head of it. You need to remember that there is no established church in Wales and the monarch is not head of the established church in Scotland. And, Sorry. and so actually this is, a, this, is a, this is actually an English question rather than a, in some ways an English question rather than a UK question. 
But the reason I think it does, the, the reason why I think that we've got that wrong to say that it's not surprising and not important is that once you begin thinking through the implications of that, you ask yourself, well, why the bishops in the House of Lords? I'm not a great fan of our system in the House of Lords, but I do quite like the bishops there, if that makes sense, which it obviously doesn't. Um, you know, the idea that you've got this huge estate of churches and people not going to that estate of churches, that's a really practical, consequential problem. It just feels to me as though there's a lot to what happens to the UK if the church is no longer central to the lives, uh, even in theory, of its citizens. But in a way, I think that, you know, the point you make about the bishops in the House of Lords is the kind of, the, you know, one of the most English things I've ever heard you say, that it, you know, your point is, it, it, it doesn't make any sense, but let's carry on with it anyway. And and that's the kind of, that's yeah. the sort of, you know, one of the sort of underlying principles of the, of the sort of, you know, of the way we think about the, the mess of our the mess of our constitution, isn't it? And so, if this is an excuse to, to 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 you know to get back into one of our old themes of tortoise, which is perhaps we should have a proper think about that, then I think it is important in that sense. Yeah, no, no, it does. It's an invitation. It's an invitation without any question, just to have a think about who we are and and what are the rules. Kerry and Giles, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you do want to tell us about a story that you think should be leading the news, you know you can email us, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. We're going to be back on Monday, but for now we leave you with the ranting of Luis Rubiales, the head of Spain's Football Federation, who forcibly kissed Jenny Hermoso on the lips after the team's World Cup win in Sydney. Here he is, shouting, I will not resign, five times. No voy a dimitir. 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 Tortoise. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges, and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.